0: Hey there, it's Antonio Giambordino, and we're back with another episode of Who Cares If You Listen. I tried dropping these on Monday night, and we are here at Wednesday afternoon. This was easily one of the most frustrating episodes that I did, not because of my guest, Tony Clement. I did have fun talking with Tony. Something went wrong with the production where I think maybe he forgot to wear headphones, and his voice kept coming up. where it wasn't supposed to and my voice was going through his recording anyway technology we're just trying to have a conversation the technology is supposed to facilitate it sometimes it just frustrates the whole damn thing and that's what i found on this week i've spent about two days just editing and putting things where it's supposed to be and sometimes it sounds like i'm talking through a toilet but such is life um I can be frustrated and throw up my arms and give up, or I can plow through and say, who cares if you listen, or more importantly, who cares if you can hear it with proper audio fidelity? And if you can't, well, you know what? I'm actually contrite about that. I'm going to fix it for next week. I'm going to try and bring some loving kindness into my own life when I uh, I wanna rage and punch at the keyboard because things don't sound the way that they want to. Uh, But in any event, I did have a great time talking with Tony. He's a former cabinet minister, both provincially here in Ontario and federally. Um, We used to play squash together, and that's how I know him. And that's how I interact with him on Instagram. And that's how I asked him to come onto the show. And he has a career in broadcasting now. Uh, I've always found him to be someone who's very interesting and approachable. And especially now, given that we just went through a U.S. election cycle and people are very red tie, blue tie, uh, getting into their camps, there's really that tribal mindset. I hope that a few of my friends will tune in and give this a chance, even if they're not of the same political persuasion as Tony. I don't think I see eye to eye with him on a lot of policy issues, but I think he's a good person and I genuinely enjoy chatting with him. So I hope your experience is the same. And if not, well, who cares if you listen? Tony, thank you so much for joining. I'm really happy that we got a chance to Talk about this, and just before I hit the record button, you were telling me that uh, you've got your new show, Boom and Bust. Uh, yes. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. I know it's been a bit of a slow news week, but uh, I'm sure you found something interesting to talk about.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's a, it's great to be uh, part of uh, television news. Uh, so uh, basically, a group of people formed a new news network called the News Forum, uh, where all voices matter. That's the tagline. Uh, and uh, they approached me about a year. Ago, um, I think I was having a. I was at a retirement party back in the day when we used to get together for things like that. Uh, This is in the before times. So about a year ago, I was at a retirement party and um, I was having an argument with somebody about something. Politics, you know, and so this guy approached me at the retirement party. And said, "Hey, I'm starting a new news network. Uh, you should be one of our hosts." And I said, "I'll be one of your hosts, but I don't want to do a political show. I, you know, been there, done that. I want to um, have uh, a business news and view show. I think that expands my horizons uh, and gets me into a different playing field." So he, he said, "Sure." So we call it Boom and Bust, and. Um, It's part of this uh, news forum. It's uh, it's online at newsforum.ca, but we're also now on Bell Satellite and all Bell platforms plus TELUS. And my show got picked up by PBS in the uh, upstate New York affiliate because that broadcasts in Eastern Ontario, including Ottawa, so they picked up my show too. And uh, yeah, I'm having fun with it. I've I've had former Prime Minister Mulroney on, economist Jack Mintz, uh, Finance Minister Rod Phillips. the Manitoba and PEI and Alberta finance ministers. So, you know, it, it does wade into politics in that sense, but it, it's it's not... What happened in Parliament this week, I, I totally don't care about that. It's more economic issues, the Im- economic impacts of COVID, uh, you know, how do we go forward? Uh, you know, what does it look like in terms of interest rates and blah, blah, blah. That's, so I'm having that's fun really, with yeah, you know, it's good. I guess surprising for
0: me to hear that, like, you know, I'm I don't want to talk about politics. I'm done with Paul. Poli- I don't know if you're done with politics. I don't want to put words. in your I'm not
1: about done about with politics, but I, I just thought it would be so such an obvious move to yeah. uh, be a political Pundit, uh, yeah. you know, which a lot of my former colleagues are, you know, James Moore, Rana Ambrose, etc., etc. You know, whatever. I thought I'd, I'd mark a new and creative path, and yep. I'm looking for creativity in my life. And um, yep. a new and creative path would be to do something a little bit different. And so this is one of the things that I'm doing that's a little bit different. Uh, and, uh, so far they're, they're paying my gas money. That's about it. <laughs> so it's not very remunerative, uh, cause I have to drive from Muskoka to St. Catharines, yeah. where the studio is once a week. Uh, but, yeah. uh, it gives me a perch, you know, uh, we're all looking for ways to express ourselves, you know, that plus my own Pat podcast and another thing podcast. Uh, I think you're celebrating a one year anniversary.
0: Are you not? Yeah.
1: We're up to episode 53, Um uh, so one of the things I'm doing it with a guy named Jody Jenkins, who's out in Belleville, and um, he's a he's a radio guy, although he's left the radio station now and he's started up his own coffee roastery. So that's kind of interesting, but uh, you know the idea there is uh, to again a, a place where we can we do we do politics, we do popular culture and social trends. Those those are the three topics and we keep it to around 30 minutes. So very different from what you're doing. And, you know, Joe Rogan goes on for three hours and uh, uh, Tim Ferriss. If you
0: if you want to go on for three hours, I will I will clear my my schedule. (laughs) No, I don't want to go on for
1: three hours No, no. but we all have our niche. Right. And, you know, you're learning as you're going. We we learned as we're going Uh, and and um, we're having fun with it. So 53 episodes. The, the thing that we decided was consistency once a week it's posted every Sunday afternoon we might change that to Tuesday but right now it's still Sunday and um, uh, but it's consistent people know to expect it and we've started to monetize it you know there's there's over a million podcasts out there uh, but how many of them are monetized so we've got a couple of sponsors which is great and uh, we're uh, we're keeping at it yeah. You got you got to have that listener base. I mean, I think
0: frankly, you know, you got the blue check mark next to you at Twitter. I think that's the the threshold to say you've got serious star power. And I'm really excited that I managed to have you here on on my show. I mean, obviously we 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 know each other in the before times in real life, but you know, starting a podcast it's like there is such a sea of content out there. I mean, how do you monetize it unless you have some sort of pull where people are actually interested in what you have to say, right?
1: Well, I think it's that, but it's mostly the consistency. Like, I don't think we started off with big numbers, to be honest with you. Maybe a few hundred. Uh, but uh, the it's like everybody knows Sunday or everybody who cares. Not everybody who knows. Everybody who cares knows. Sunday afternoon is a new podcast and I, I, it's a really eclectic show. Like it, we get some politicians, of course, some ex politicians, uh, this week, we've got the former U S ambassador to Canada, uh, David Wilkins, who was there mm-hmm. during the Bush era. So obviously U S election talk, but we, I've also had musical guests, uh, a country, uh, country singer and songwriter, uh, who's in Nashville. Who's a friend of mine, Victoria Banks, Kelly Ogden, who's, from a uh, you know a, a a sort of punk pop band called the Dolly Rots out of Florida, and I, I just I've been a fan of of the Dolly Rots for years, and I just DM'd her uh, on social media said, hey, come on my podcast. She said, sure. So you know so things like that. We had we've had a wrestler on, uh, Leo Rush as part of, as part of the WWE. Uh, so yeah, I, I I I like to mix it up that the boom and bust show is pretty straightforward news and views, economy, business, those kinds of things. I wear a suit and tie it's the only day of the week I wear a suit and tie. Uh, and it's a very structured format. This, the podcast, and I think you'll find this Antonio, you know, really you're, you're running your own show. You know, no one's, yep. there's nobody tapping you on the shoulder and saying, excuse me, Antonio, you really shouldn't be talking about that, that our metrics indicate that that's not really what the audience wants. No, no, you're you're finding your way, and you're doing you're being yourself, and you're doing your thing, and uh, that's creativity. That's we need creativity in our. I life.
0: mean, I love that's that creativity. idea. I mean, for sure. Uh, obviously, I mean, I think everybody to a certain extent. Mm-hmm will give in to peer pressure when it comes to creating content. I mean, I specifically labeled this podcast. The title is Who Cares If You Listen? And that was very intentional where it's like, I want something that's going to be meaningful to me. I don't want it to be meaningful based on the goal of monetizing it, becoming a Joe Rogan or doing something where I want to do something because it's going to sell. I'm going to talk to people that I genuinely find interesting but you know there is always that pressure i mean i felt it professionally and personally where if you're doing something where you're kind of going against the grain you're bucking against the trend i don't know about you i feel like we're we're very very different in that respect and i want to ask you about that where like if i'm doing something that kind of goes against the herd or i think oh someone's gonna get angry at me or you know I'm going to get an email about this. Like, I don't want to do it. I can feel my stomach clenching up. I, I, I want to be liked rather than being right
1: and i mean you know uh there's something to be said for that though um you know are we put on this earth to to make people upset and to trigger them i, I don't think so so uh, i you know i think there are responsible limits you can be yourself and you can do a podcast without being an asshole uh you know yeah. so so uh, you know find find the the place where you're 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 expressing yourself but don't 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 be a jerk about it i who who, who wants that so i that that's the limit I put on myself maybe sure and I
0: you know that's that's a a reasonable limit I don't think that I am a jerk and it's not like oh you know this is my my license to kind of you know really come out of my shell and be toxic and be a be a monster but you know uh, I like for example I was trying to prep for this episode I decided to read your wikipedia profile and it's great when when your guest has a wikipedia profile it makes doing any kind of background research a lot easier. like even before I was born. I was born in nineteen eighty-six. And I, I saw in nineteen eighty-six you were a law student trying to recruit an ambassador from apartheid South Africa to to talk at you're at U of T, right? That was at U of T law school, and a couple of your professors tried to bring an injunction to court to to stop this guy from from speaking. And like the only thing going in my mind was like, you know, one time I I said something controversial about uh, a conversation I had with the dean and I got like an angry, you know, message from one of my colleagues saying this is really problematic and you need to you need to change your tone and that. And it really like dealing with your own professors, ostensibly, you know, disapproving of what you're doing and being being angry, furious, you know, trying, you know. I, I can't imagine being in that sphere. What what is, what is going through your mind at this point, if you remember 34 years back?
1: Well, I do. I do. Because uh, with Twitter, nothing ever gets old. So, you know, people bring it up. And, and so uh, interesting point, it wasn't to have the South African ambassador speak, it was that having the South African ambassador debate with, another, with a law professor, Bill Graham, at the time was an international law professor at UT Law, he later became a Liberal cabinet minister Interim Liberal Leader, etc. So Bill Graham was debating the South African Ambassador. That was the that was the context. Uh, so we weren't giving the South African Ambassador a free pass. And what happened was the South African Ambassador was at a debate at Hart House at U of T. Uh, the Hart House Debating Society had invited him to talk about South Africa. The thing became a riot. It, that literally was a riot. There there, there was such. Uh, discord in the room, in the debates club room, that somebody picked up a 30 pound wooden mace, which is the symbol of authority and order in our society, and hurled it at the head of the South African ambassador. The warden of Hardhouse lifted up his arm to to protect the ambassador from this projectile mace, broke his arm, and then a riot happened, and the, the debate was called off. This is a you know a very storied incident at U of T. So I felt strongly as a law student that if you can't have a free debate in university, where the heck were you going to have it? So I created an organization called Lawyers for Fundamental Freedoms, because freedom of expression is a fundamental freedom under the charter. And we invited the South African ambassador to debate at the law school against a, a liberal U of T law professor named uh, Bill Graham. Uh, so that was the context, and there was protests, and uh, there were mounted police around the the moot court building to protect uh, those inside. So and and uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association defended me. Global Mail did an editorial. Uh, you know, I was on. I was a law student on Canada AM defending freedom of of expression, freedom of speech, uh, and so. Then the the thing happened and we all went on with our lives. The, the injunction was was failed. It was one of the first charter cases about the ap- application of freedom of expression on uh, university campus. Uh, the, the injunction failed. The thing went ahead. And then I went on with my life. And then like 28, 29 years later, when the Twitter machine started, all of a sudden, well, Tony Clemento's is a racist because he invited the South African. No. No, uh, not the context, not the reality. But of course, in social media, that's a good little soundbite that uh, Tony Clement is a racist. So, you know, I, I, for, a, for a while, a few years ago, I said, no, here's the context. They, they don't want to listen to me. So you just sort of ignore that, uh, that you have to. But uh, it's a little lesson about, you know, how me as a 27 year old, something I did as, when I was 27. With the purest, purest of intentions on freedom of expression, now becomes a talking point. When I was a politician, about what a what a nasty guy I I am, uh, because of the Twitter machine. So that's the world we're in. I mean, my my own solution to that, and I've never worked in partisan
0: politics, so maybe it's a luxury that I have. You know, there are times when I just can't deal with the noise people cherry picking things that i've said I, I i refuse to get in any kind of debate on social media because it's like what's the prize for winning absolutely nothing what's what's what what's the what's the transactional cost i'm exhausted i'm probably angry i can like feel the cortisol going through me and it's like why do i do it i am happy to withdraw from twitter like i'll check out at the nhl trade deadline and of course right now with the whole schadenfreude south of the border like you can't not look it's like you know staring at a train wreck But for the most part, I just try and stay away from that. I I wouldn't engage on Twitter. So I find it interesting you saying that because I can't think of another, at least Canadian politician, there's one I can think of south of the border, but I can't think of another Canadian politician who's really embraced social media quite to the level that you have. And yet, it seems like you're you're acutely aware of how vitriolic. Terrible.
1: I mean, look, I I, how I use uh, social media is very different than ten years ago, though. So um, I I don't I don't engage in Twitter fights anymore. I got out of that game a long time ago. Um, I don't want this to be do as I say, uh, do as I say, not as I do. Because you know, if I were to say just ignore it, um, I don't. I try to ignore it but I don't succeed all the time at ignoring it. So what I do is more passive aggressive now. So uh, if somebody criticizes boom and bust, uh, I I usually tweet back, thank you for watching boom and bust where all voices matter, you know, and with a smiley face. Uh, so that's passive aggressive. Uh, if someone says something, you know, about gazebos, uh, you know, the yeah. gazebo lives on. Uh, apparently it costs $50 million, according to Twitter, when it actually costs $10,000. But regardless of that, uh, I'll, I'll do a little, um, uh, there's a, an emoji for Spock, uh, live long and prosper hand signal. Uh, yeah. so, uh, I put that, I reply with that, you know, that's passive aggressive. So it makes me feel slightly better without engaging in the people. And, uh, um, but generally, um, I, 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 I have to, I don't have to be on social media but i uh, it's uh, i believe uh, the reason i'm still on social media is because i use it as a platform to advertise my tv shows to advertise the businesses that i'm involved in uh, to you know to I, I think I tweeted this morning on that um, uh, and I typically am, I don't try to be negative I, I, try, I try to stay away from negativity but I, I got a little bit negative uh, with that that story this morning out of Ottawa that Whole Foods uh, was saying yeah. that their employees can't wear a poppy so I think I tweeted you know uh, that yeah that, uh, I, I said how many uh, how many people fought and died for the right of this conglomerate to be a-holes. I mean, I think so, I think
0: my line on Facebook was, you people come to our country, to try and sell us organic milk and honey. And you can't even shell out a couple of bucks for a poppy. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I'm getting too close to quoting Don Cherry over there. I don't know if I want to hitch myself to that wagon anymore.
1: Use guys. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, but uh, no, so that's, that's about as negative as I get. Yeah. And that's very rare um but yeah. uh, you know i think people are starting to realize the uh, the poisoned chalice that is social media uh, and hopefully uh, it uh, it contributes uh, because they're aware of it now uh, it, it is helpful in people's mental wellness to not get too attached to it I, I really do hope that because uh, it can have some very serious mental wellness impacts if you're if you're not aware of that
0: like have you ever I mean have you experienced that yourself are there moments where you're just like I gotta put the phone down because this is just making me sick to my stomach
1: absolutely yeah many many times so um, so that's not good and and so uh, you know in in tony 2.0 which is where I am now um, I have a lot more regard for my mental wellness. Uh, I, I used to sort of stuff any resentment or anger down into the recesses of my, of my soul. Uh, there, I dealt with it. I just don't talk about it or don't think about it. And uh, that was, uh, injurious to my mental wellness. So now I'm a lot, you know, I'm a lot more mindful. Um, um, I practice a form of mindfulness, I guess. Uh, and part of that mindfulness is to be aware of when I am resentful of a situation or angry at a situation or angry at a person, and I deal with it then and there. I, I, part of it is I just identifying. oh, I'm being resentful right now. Oh, I'm, I'm angry at something right now. I, 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 I'm a human being, so I will continue to have anger and resentment. Uh, sure. But it's how you deal with it. And my mindfulness routine is to deal with it right up front to identify it and to give it away, and uh, I'm not saying that works 100% of the time, but it's sure as heck better than what I used to do, uh, which would uh, create you know mental wellness difficulties in, in other manifestations. So um, yeah, I mean that's part of uh, we all try to improve. I hope, and uh, I, I feel that I'm much better armed and equipped to deal with social media uh, and the other uh, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that happen in, in one's life.
0: Well, I imagine you would have more of a share than most of us. I mean, you're talking about, you know, stuffing down resentment and anger, and I know a lot about resisting. I've, I've gone through that that journey myself, but I feel like what I've done is a microcosm. When you live in the public limelight, as you did for, God, I mean, what was your first election? Like 1995, somewhere in that area? 94,
1: area. actually. I ran municipally in Toronto, yeah.
0: All right. So like a, over a quarter century of basically being in the public eye and like any soundbite you have, any, any slip, any gaffe, any comment, any idea is going to be open for intense scrutiny from from the masses i mean if you if you carry any resentment with you i imagine that's got to make you know that's you know the old joke about politicians aging horribly after like four years at the helm or something like that like that's got to weigh on you really heavy day in day out
1: i thought antonio i thought i was being stoic i thought i was being manly Right. Uh, oh, you know, guy, real guys don't uh, don't get impacted by that. They don't let that bother them. Uh, how how sorry I am that I learned the lesson too late, uh, that that isn't the proper way to deal with things. Uh, that that uh, actual uh, manliness involves you know, confronting your emotions and, uh, and dealing with them in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an adult way. But uh, hey, we you live and learn, my friend. Uh, nobody Absolutely. nobody has the answers. You, you know, we're nobody dumping on answers. social media,
0: and I think rightly so. I think there's a lot of toxic aspects to it. But I do want to say just for those of my listeners who haven't heard this story before, I mean, the upside is, you know, every now and then really cool things happen on social media. I You followed me on Instagram, probably I'm going to say about seven years ago now. And I didn't think anything of it. I just assumed, you know, I mean, John McCain followed me on Twitter for like a couple of minutes, and I'm pretty sure John McCain has never used Twitter, you know, may he rest in peace ever at any point in his life. So I figured, okay, it's some intern on his parliamentary Hill office who's following me and liking the occasional pictures of my cat. And then I was like, at one point, I commented on something. I was like, that's really, that's really Tony, or at least someone who's, who's doing a reasonable facsimile of him. And then... I messaged you when I saw you playing squash in Muskoka. You had a you had a picture of you and one of your squash rivals and I was like, Let's get a game in, let's do it. And he said, You're on. So I wrote a letter, you know, stamping everything to your, your parliamentary office and a couple of months later I get I get an email from you and You know, we're we're playing squash together, I mean three Four years, probably. Yeah, I think it
1: must have been that long. Yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, I think that says something about you,
0: that you're that approachable, that that's something that you would do with someone out of the blue. But also, I think to a broader sense, it says something about Canada. I mean, can you imagine writing to anyone in the Bush or Obama administration and be like, hey, you want to go hit? get the squash ball sometime. I live in DC. I feel like a black van is going to come and take me away and I'm not going to be seen from for a few weeks. I don't think it's that same level of collegiality or openness that we're, that, you know, it's something really unique to hear, unique to you. And I, it's something that I'm grateful for.
1: Yeah. You know, that's a good point, uh, Antonio. And uh, I uh, hopefully that never goes away. Uh, I I think Canadian politicians are very approachable. uh, And when you compare us to other politicians of other countries, not just the U.S., but uh, you know in Europe certainly and definitely not, never possible in Asia. You you go to India, and um, the uh, the 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 test of how important you are as an Indian politician is how many thousands of bodyguards you have and how aloof you can be. Uh, you know so. Um, very different political climate there, I know, but still uh, look, maybe we're naive, but I like our naivety. I like the fact that we try to, to politicians try to be as normal as possible and live as normal lives as possible. Uh, that, that, that's still the goal. Uh, and um, I think that's great about our country. So uh, yeah, I was, I think I was very approachable and, and uh, we got some good squash games in and uh, <laughs> taught me a few lessons. Uh, cuz you're you're a badminton player too and uh, here here's a here's a pro tip uh, folks uh don't play squash with a guy who also plays badminton cuz you can't get a you can't get a squash ball around the guy uh but you know i i i enjoyed that that was uh, those were good times
0: you know it's funny though on that sort of tangent i just before i logged on and it's november 6th right now this is probably going to go up in about 2 weeks time but i just heard that um Justin Trudeau, Jagmeet Singh, and a couple of the other uh, party leaders and politicians are now getting a security detail. That that is something that's just emerging now in light of some circumstances that have been happening on the Hill. So I, I wonder if that was just sort of a unique kind of moment in time that that uh, maybe we'll be looking back on this in two three years time and say you know that, those were a simpler time when. You know, we didn't have the Canadian equivalent of a Secret Service going around.
1: Yeah, uh, that, you know, uh, I I used to have a security detail whenever there was a specific threat against me as a minister. Um, I didn't have one as a matter of course. It was whenever the threat level was higher because some guy somewhere was saying he was going to get me. Uh, And um, that kind of worked for me because most of the time I could uh, I could live my life without. You know an rcmp officer sort of hanging around but uh i think that i think for the party leaders i that's probably a good thing uh and uh there's uh look we live in in the times we're in are are kind of dark uh let's face it uh, duh yeah do you think uh and uh so um i think that that's probably appropriate to uh th- there's a lot of crazy people out there or troubled people i should say troubled people uh, and uh, we don't want them to uh, attack our leaders.
0: Yeah, no, and I think that's fair. I mean, it is an interesting time politically. I don't really want to talk about the ins and outs of of, uh, of partisan politics, at least at a, at a low level. But I mean, one, one comment I would say, you know, you mentioned the gazebo thing. I think at one point when the whole we charity scandal was sort of hitting the newspaper headlines. I saw you tweet, you know, 900 million. I wonder how many gazebos I could have got for that. And, 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 you know, I, I appreciated you sort of, uh, you know, doing a callback in, in that reference, but it's an interesting thing. Like I say, on a high level, I know a lot of people over the years that have gotten angry at the sponsorship scandal that have gotten angry with regards to Mike Duffy and, you know, his housing expenses, people that have gotten angry with regards to, to weed charity. I mean, pick your, pick your scandal du jour. It always, it seems to me, maybe I'm young and naive in this regard. It seems to me that if you wear a red tie, there are certain scandals where you are incensed beyond belief and you are going to feign, you know, extreme, uh, uh disgust and shock and awe and if you wear a blue tie there's going to be these other controversies that are going to to make you enraged so you know i hear i hear pierre paul ever on the on the on the tv quite a bit my friends that would vote conservative are really upset about the We charity scandal my friends who don't think it's just noise it's distraction and it's kind of like are we living in an era Especially looking at what's going on south with Donald Trump, and it was just one thing after another after another. Are we, are we sort of post-scandal? Like, are we in a situation where we've become so tribal and partisan that it's almost like sports fans? Like, if your guy does a two-handed slash to the back of someone's head, he's on your team. You can't possibly see him in objective
1: lenses anymore. I don't think that ever went. I don't think this is new. I, I think it's manifestation. Is new because of social media and the outrage machine that is the social media. But uh, you know, you can look at newspapers uh, from the you know newspapers of the day were social media, right? So the, yeah. they, you know, uh, let's take U.S. politics as an example, and you know George Washington uh, was bemoaning the fact that there were partisan attacks against him, and uh, you know that they said that his mother wore army boots or whatever the equivalent was. Back in those days, um, so there's always that, and you know, uh, Sir John A. Macdonald had the Pacific scandal, uh, and uh, it's it's not nothing new under the sun that way. Uh, the only thing that it may be different, and uh, I've been thinking a lot about this. We're kind of in this millenarian time where um, we, we as partisans are convinced that this is the most important election Every ever, year, whatever the election is. In Canada, ele- election 2019, in the U.S. election 2020. And the stakes are so high that if my team doesn't yep. win, it's the end of the world as we know it. Yep. And when you when you frame an election that way or a contest of any sort, Um, then, of course, the stakes, the the religiousness of this, this, uh, this architectonic battle uh, takes you to places where there are mental health impacts. You know, people are crying, they're grieving, they're yelling, they're marching, they're throwing bricks, they're throwing Molotov cocktails, because the future of the world depends on it, Antonio. It's the future of the world, right? i i've
0: been i've been hearing this i mean one of my own personal political i i like new innovative ideas i don't care what side of the spectrum they come from i like things that are completely sort of off the shelf that we haven't tried before i really like the idea and we probably would disagree on i don't know i assume we would disagree on having some sort of electoral reform where we have proportional representation mixed member parliament, something like that. I love it. I like the idea that, you know, I can live in Ottawa South, which has been safely liberal for my entire life. And I could still have a vote that matters. I could pick to vote for conservative or green or NDP. And I'm not just throwing my ballot away. And it's been dangled in front of me, a couple times. Once provincially, I think Dalton McGinty had a referendum on it. And once federally, Justin Trudeau said he's going to get rid of it. And then when the time comes, you know, people keep coming back to, you know, this election is too important. You have to vote strategically. You have to hold your nose and vote for this guy, even though you want to vote for that guy, because this election is too important. And I said, well, which one was the unimportant election? Which was the election that really didn't matter a crap, and it's only the, right, it's only in right. hindsight, in and, and, retrospect, and,
1: uh, right? And, and you know, uh, every election is the most important election in, in several generations or whatever. And the other thing that I've noticed about U.S. politics, because of course we we've, we've been so focused on it, is America has never been so divided. Really, I seem to remember the Vietnam War where they were burning buildings about a quarter of a mile from the Capitol. And I seem to remember a U.S. civil war where 750,000 Americans fought and died. So don't tell me America has never been so divided as today. I'm sorry. Historically, you're incorrect. Uh, And then I then I've got into a couple. Not really. Again, here I am talking about Twitter again. But uh, Trump is the worst president ever in the history of the United States, which is a you know, that's a valid you know, you might have historical uh, opinion on that. But I, I, my reply is Andrew Johnson. That's all I say. Andrew Johnson. He was the president who took over when Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, he was a Democrat, not a Republican, but he was a Unionist from Kentucky, and he started the process that eventually became the Jim Crow era. Uh, you know, uh, he he was the one that after the Union won the war. Uh, started to concede the ground in the southern u.s states for lynchings and for uh you know for uh subduing the negro population so that they wouldn't have uh, uh, they wouldn't exercise their rights to vote uh so you know i can make a pretty good case that if lincoln had survived the assassination attempt uh history in america would be very very different we wouldn't have had uh, 150 years of this institutional racism that is still um, besmirching their uh, their records. So anyway, I mean, that's that's for the historians, I guess. I I just um, you know, I I I'll tell you one little story. I've got lots of stories, of course, but uh, but I'll tell you one story. I I had just been elected as a member of provincial parliament. And um, uh, I uh, there was a big this is in 1995 Mike Harris just got in. Ernie Eves was uh, uh, Ernie Eves was uh, the finance minister, but also the house leader, and we had this omnibus bill that became oh all the rage. Oh my gosh, they've got an omnibus bill, and they're trying to they're trying to subvert fascism democracy. Fascism
0: in legislation.
1: Fascism. Harris is a fascist, and so we had this caucus meeting, and you know, I was just new as an MPP. I, what did I know? And um, so Ernie was uh, Ernie was doing a presentation as the house leader saying, well we've got this uh, bill I think it was called bill 26 or something like that. Uh, and um, and uh, Ernie was trying to uh, uh, trying to say, well we've got to make some changes to this bill because like the the upset is too great. And so I stood up in caucus, I said, Ernie, but what about, what about this aspect of the bill? And what about we need to get this passed and we need to we need to do this. What's going to happen if we don't do that? And he just kind of looked at me sideways and said, it's only politics, but like relax. We'll, we'll, we'll figure, you know, oh, I didn't realize that was an option. <laughs> it's only <laughs> politics. Uh, but I uh, kind of learned my lesson there that something that. What's the lesson? The lesson is something that appears huge in your brain at any particular time. When you look at the whole course of human history may not be as important as you think it is at the time. I was not expecting to have like a mindfulness
0: lesson from Tony Clement, but I think that is a really important perspective. I looked up Ernie Eves last night because I had not really heard his name since that election when uh, when uh, you know he after his his brief term as premier apparently he's in Jamaica now working in in, in medical marijuana
1: and I'm like that I I couldn't believe it <laughs> good old Ernie that guy he was something else I'll tell you but I'll tell you when I when I ran and won federally in Perry San Muskoka. I won by a 21 votes on election night, and it was going to be an automatic judicial recount. He was the first phone call on my phone when uh, we received, cause I was behind all election night. And then I I was only ahead in the second to last poll that was counted. And um, so he phoned me cause he had won in Perry sound riding by six votes, uh, hence his nickname landslide Ernie. And uh, so he, he phoned me and he said, there's going to be a recount uh you know don't worry the ones who are ahead before the recount starts typically do win so don't don't get your shorts in a knot hire a good lawyer bump but um but um here's what you do here's what you do it was the best advice i got uh he, he was like brilliant on it so i have a special place uh because of that i also knew his family very well because they were perry sounders uh, his, uh, daughter, Natalie was a, um, or is a veterinarian in Perry sound. So, you know, nice family, but, uh, yeah, he's had a, he's had quite the career that guy. That's for sure.
0: And, 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 quite the nickname there too. Yeah. I mean, just very quickly, very quickly. I got invited to a zoom chat with the Ottawa West NDP and I got a chance to see Ed Broadbent. And
1: oh my he goodness.
0: Story about, he told a story about his first ever election, uh, in Oshawa. Where he won by, I think, like 13 votes. And he said the entire, and I didn't know this story because it's not published anywhere, but he says he had originally lost to Mike Starr, who was a Baker cabinet minister, right. by about 100 and some odd votes. But the white collar executives at the GM plant all wanted to come in with their fancy ballpoint pens, which were all the rage at the time. And they didn't want to use. The pencil that was in the election booth, but the election <laughs> that clearly stipulated you had to mark it in pencil. And so, a judge who was appointed by his conservative rival threw out about 150 ballots in the process.
1: That's that's and a great story,
0: there, but for the grace of God. And it's and uh, you know, it's and especially in the cycle now that we're looking at the election down south, like can you imagine the same thing where it's like the voter intent is so appallingly clear, but. You know, rules are rules. It's too bad. Yeah, I I don't think
1: that case law would apply today. Let's put it that way. But uh, uh, did I ever tell you about how I almost became an NDP? You have not. So in in 1974, uh, before I I was 13 years old, uh, pre political. My best friend, I, I lived in uh, York Southwestern riding in sort of central Toronto at that time and in a, in a high rise apartment building uh, with my single mom. And uh, my friend was a guy named Vern Friedlander. And Vern mm-hmm. uh, said, hey, you know, there's a, this um, David Lewis was the MP. So he was the leader of the NDP, David Lewis. And so Vern said, Hey, would you like to, there's going to be a, uh, there's going to be a barbecue the, that David Lewis is putting on. Would you like to come with me? I'm going to go to the barbecue. And I kind of blew it off and said, nah, you know, too busy, whatever. But I always wonder if I'd gone to the barbecue with my best friend, Vern, would I have become an NDP rather than a conservative? Cause this was all before I became a conservative. Uh, and, uh, I, my, uh, political views would have been completely different because I was in, you know, David Lewis territory, uh, NDP territory, York Southwestern. So, you know, the vicissitude, vicissitudes of life, you don't know what what is going to impact on you. And there's these kind of hinges where you go through this door here, or you go through that door here, things might be completely different. So there's you my know, NDP that, that story. That is really cool. I, I you know, I don't know if anyone's ever aired
0: that out before, but I'm, I'm happy to, to to hear you know how how narrowly you avoided or you almost the almost socialist Tony Clement That's right uh,
1: <laughs> scary I, scary yeah. thought
0: I mean when you think about sort of like I said I'm I'm really interested in sort of high level you know I'll talk about politics sort of in the abstract but not in sort of the the day-to-day kind of partisan tussle and I and I saw when you ran federally you you came up with one of your platform ideas was a lifetime income tax. I've never, I never heard of that before. I mean, that is something like, that That sounds like a really innovative idea. I, I wanna, you know, I wanna tease out innovation, whether or not I, I fully understand it.
1: It was like the first $250,000 you earn yeah. is tax-free. Uh, as, a, as a young person, uh, you know, uh, you got student debt, uh, you might be starting you might be trying to save for a house or a condo. You might be starting a new business. You might be a startup guy or gal. Uh, and so the idea is, first two hundred fifty thousand you earn is tax free. Don't pay tax on it once you graduate from, uh, you know, a high school or a university. Uh, and um, I thought that was a really cool idea. I thought it was it, it would show that the Conservative Party is can be youth oriented and understand. The, the challenges of being a young person. I, I, I first came up with, with the idea in 2004 when I was running against Harper for leader. Uh, we called it Jumpstart 250. And it kind of echoed a little bit on the fringes of Canadian politics when Scott Bryson was running for liberal leader. He kind of stole the policy and, and uh, used it as one of his policy planks. And I think some other another leadership candidate used it at some other point somewhere along the line. So uh, you know, imitation is the best form of flattery, right? So uh, there you go. I didn't mind that at all, and uh, it was something I was very proud of at the time, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about it, and I mean, obviously, there's nuance to any sort of policy. I mean, especially when you're
0: using it in 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 a, in a campaign scenario. But you know, if a, if somebody, let's say, you're you're sort of stuck in the lower quartile of of Canadian society, you make twenty five thousand dollars a year. You know, after ten years, you're still kind of at that that subsistence level. Uh, is is there some sort of a system there where you know you've already made two hundred fifty thousand dollars in your life, but you're still not doing so great? I don't. I, are you are you paying income tax even at that that sort of minimum marginal level at that
1: point? Well, you, there still would be the basic personal exemption that would still
0: okay. In. All right. Well, I I mean right now the the cause celebre du jour is. Basic income, be it universal basic income or some sort of assistance-based basic income, and people talk about it like it's something new. And I guess because we have SERB, it is something new, but really it's not. I mean, it's been going around. People have been talking about it since the 60s and 70s, so it's it's not exactly a new idea. But uh, do you, do you think that's something that we're going to see in an era that is more and more automatized, where I think more and more people are losing their jobs to robots and apps? Is is that an inevitability at this point?
1: Could be, uh, could be. I th- obviously there's a lot more debate about it in uh, in policy circles, not just of the left, uh, but also in conservative circles too. Uh, the uh, the real uh, for conservatives, uh, one of the things that they like about it is if you frame it properly, you could get rid of a whole bunch of bureaucracy like all of these means tests, all of these, you know, apply for this. uh, And uh, some some system, some bureaucratic system is going to judge whether you filled the form out properly. All that goes away. Uh, And so now I know there are some that have said UBI plus plus plus, but properly run, it would take away all that and you'd have a basic income. So that's that for a conservative, uh, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by that there's always the argument you know what are the um, uh what are the incentives or disincentives and so you know we have all heard the anecdotes of serb and uh, you know you talk to bar owners and they say they can't get any wait staff or bartenders because everybody is getting free money from serb well uh you know so we, we have i i don't know how to deal with that other than you know pay them more and they'll show up for work that's that's a possibility but then the economics of of the hospitality industry have to be, you know, changed a lot, but that's that's a debate for society. To me, that's not a deal killer. Uh, for some conservatives, it is a deal killer because they're worried about the disincentives, uh, creating a whole marginal cast of people that just, you know, for generations have no reason to work. Uh, yeah. And and so that I, I, I do have some concerns about that, and we have to discuss that. Um, I think uh, I was I've been swayed by there was an American Enterprise Institute article on the Great Society a few years ago. That's uh, Lyndon Johnson's upgrade of the welfare state that he did in the 60s. And uh, it makes the point that uh, the Great Society and the welfare system, you know, obviously FDR uh, in the States was the original original president to to get the United States onto that track um, the, the one thing that was missing was the dignity of work and uh, I'm not trying to be too highfalutin about it. But uh, I actually one of my core beliefs is that human beings in our DNA, we have to work. We, it's very important for our self-worth, for our health, for our mental wellness that we work, that we have a job to go to, that we have things to do. It doesn't have to be, especially in the gig economy. It doesn't have to be a formal, you know, salaried, hierarchical job. I mean, I I don't have that now. I'm a, I'm a startup entrepreneur, so I report to me. But I have a job to go to every morning, in the sense that I have things to do that advance my job goals, uh, and I think that's very important. And if you don't have that, you you're, you run into other problems. Uh, that one finds in the welfare society that uh social problems um, uh mental wellness problems those kinds of things so uh we got to find a way uh in a ubi world where we still value the dignity of a job maybe maybe yeah. i'm maybe i'm overthinking it and over worrying it but that's, that's i mean i guess uh, i would you I would know say. if i want
0: to play devil's advocate there i would say you know, there are many people at the upper echelon of Canadian or the world society that don't have to work day to day to support themselves.
1: They, oh, and look what happens to them, them yeah. though. They become yeah. de- degenerate. Yeah. Assholes.
0: I, I mean, I mean, <laughs> by and large, there is there is a lot of that. I mean, you see sort of the very famous uh, examples of like, you know, uh, you know, billionaire kids and uh, you know, Paris Hilton for a, for a long time was sort of the the, the poster child of that. But um, I don't know of any of them. I I guess I can't think of an example off the top of my head of someone who could lead that purely hedonic landscape that also then becomes very goal oriented. I don't know. I mean, I don't well, know. I
1: mean, what they do is they do it through philanthropy. The, the, the philanthropy becomes their job. How do I how do I give away money in a way that'll be impactful? on human society uh you know so so maybe these new
0: ubi rate. people who no longer have to work these minimum income jobs would become you know the evangelists of a new volunteer yeah you know that's
1: the, a that's a great thought a yeah no i, I mean who I, knows I, I i i'd be told i'd be 100 percent for that uh so yeah i mean uh, I, all i'm saying is you gotta have a reason yeah. to get up in the morning. Absolutely, bad absolutely.
0: I think that's something that everyone's gonna agree on. Um, so you have you 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 have a, a a podcast that is is seems to be highly touted. You've got your TV show now that uh, it's
1: once a week. You you Boom and and bust. It's uh, five nights a week. Um, oh wow! Okay. I, I tape a bunch of shows at at the same time. Uh, so uh, yeah, so that's on at seven p.m. on I think it's Bell five oh six. 7 and okay. 10 p.m. I think it gets repeated at 10 p.m. And it's on, I think, 7 p.m. on PBS Monday nights okay. in, the, in the Ottawa area. Uh, okay. And um, yeah, wow. so uh, that's those those wow. are my fun thing. Those are that's part of my media empire. And then uh, I'm, I'm involved in <laughs> regular
0: at, Conrad Black. Over oh,
1: there. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, I wish. Uh, but uh, then I've got my uh, I'm a startup entrepreneur. So I've got a half a dozen startups that I'm involved in. Two of them are tech startups. Woo! and four of them are our um, healthcare startups. So uh,
0: anything, anything interesting you want to talk? I mean, yeah,
1: like, sure. Wh- yeah, uh, the, the um, the uh, probably that for your uh, viewers and listeners, um, one of them involves uh, being on the advisory board, uh, red light Holland, which is a psilocybin mushroom, mushrooms and truffles uh, company. Pub- You're getting the psychedelics. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So now where, where 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 is that right now?
0: Like right now, it's it's still controlled. Yes. It's illegal. So Canada, so this Canada. this is
1: an Ontario-based company listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange that has all of its operations in Holland, where gotcha. a tru- a truffles uh, truffled part of the mushroom is is legal. So there's a whole distribution uh, system that is being set up in Holland. But of course, the thinking goes that uh, over time, uh, psilocybin will be become legalized as, as we just. Saw in the referendum in Oregon, for instance, and in D.C., I think. So um, uh, right now, Health Canada has just approved psilocybin microdosing in a couple of cases involving end-of-life care. Uh, So uh, look, there's a lot of research that has to be done, and I'm not touting uh, definitively what the research will show or does show, but there is some evidence already that uh, psilocybin reduces anxiety, reduces depression, reduces suicide uh, ideation, reduces PTSD, uh so there's a, a lot of uh, uh, medicinal aspects to it and w- what we're talking about is micro dosing anyway it's not like you know you know going on a wild uh, trip uh, uh- through, yeah. through massive amounts of psilocybin. So so uh, I think there's, there's something that deserves to be researched there. And um, uh, now the one thing that came up as a result of me being on the advisory board of Red Light Holland was, oh, you know, Tony Clement was an anti-drug guy under Stephen Harper, and how dare he, blah, blah, blah. Is that a fair label? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a criticism that I should have expected. Um, but uh, number one, people are allowed to change their minds. I thought we actually want it, you know, progress happens when people change their minds. That's the whole LGBT thing. Uh, you know, my views on LGBT are very different from 30 years ago. You know, I'm sorry right. I was not at the forefront 30 years ago, but shouldn't you be glad that I'm with the LGBT community now, you know, that, that's, right. that's called progress. So similarly on, on drugs, uh, my opinion of heroin hasn't changed uh, but uh, I think that uh, microdosing dosing psilocybin uh, is not anything to be feared uh, my, my view on that I don't even know if I don't even know if I had a view 10 15 years ago on it I was more concerned about heroin but sure. re- regardless sure. I think that uh, that's a sign of progress that my view can change on it um, and so uh, I, I think I, sh- I should have been <laughs> extolled rather than condemned <laughs>
0: I I guess the criticism that I've heard, and I mean, I went to U of O, so I've got a lot of sort of left-wing lawyer friends that are really into this sphere more than I am. Uh, I've heard it especially with people like Julian Fantino, where the idea is that you made a career of putting people who sell marijuana, I don't want to say made a career, that's that's a bit too strong, but as part of your tenure as the Toronto Chief of Police, your officers arrested people who were selling marijuana. And now ostensibly in his professional endeavors, he's selling marijuana. So the argument is, you know, it wasn't legal then, it is legal now. So he is clearly operating within the, 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 the framework that's there. But is there some kind of a double standard or is there some kind of an unfairness where people that might have been low-level drug dealers are sitting in jail right now instead of ostensibly they would be experts in this new field you know if tweed could could get them out they would be people that would well poised not only to reintegrate in society but maybe thrive is that a fair yeah, criticism I, I guess it's
1: a criticism I they, I've heard that criticism leveled um, uh, th- this goes to the whole problem of presentism where you're attributing the values of today on actions of people of yesteryear uh, you know mm-hmm. is that is that mm-hmm. this is the whole Sir John a MacDonald debate uh, and sure. so so at some point you know, it's you have to allow people to progress in in their views. Otherwise, yeah. you know, we, we have no progress. That's the very definition of it. So um, I, I can understand why uh, people who perhaps want to corner the market on cannabis aren't happy about new entrants. But, uh, you know, that's it's a legal product uh, and uh, people are allowed to invest in it and um, and be part of of that industry. I'm not part of that industry myself, uh, but sure. I, I can I can see I can see the why why you'd have to you'd have to understand why it's possible now and it wasn't possible 30 years ago. 30 years ago, Julian Fantina would say, "Well, I was applying the law. If you if you have a problem with the law, take it up with the politicians. I was I was merely a police officer or a police chief applying the law." Um, right. you know, right. so you can go that route too
0: yeah and I don't I don't want you to have to, to speak for him it's just a sort of I saw the parallel there and I thought it was interesting but you but you said that heroin is still that is that is for you that is a, a bridge too far what, It's what's a nasty
1: it's a nasty horrible drug that ruins people's lives so just ask Keith Richards who will tell you now that it's a nasty horrible drug so uh you know I read his uh, his memoir and uh he was very close to he's, he's a bright guy and by the way the Toronto arrest of Keith Richards was the turning point for him uh, when he was arrested in toronto for dealing that's how they got him for dealing not possession Go canada and uh then they had to do that uh, you know concert to uh, as part of his community service and all this sort of jazz do you remember that but that but i know no, no they had to do the that? rolling stones had to do a concert for the cnib what year was that Oh shit. I don't know. Uh, what was that? In the 70 uh, No, uh, yeah, 70s or no, early like, 80s, like, like, 80s, 80s. But like by the
0: 80s, he must have been so well established as a musician. What the hell is he doing like dealing drugs?
1: Well, that's what they charged him with. <laughs> okay. okay. It so, was just
0: that he had so much heroin that maybe it was like a he had so much heroin he had to be a dealer.
1: Shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they charged him with that in Toronto and his lawyer said, "Look, Keith, you're screwed, man. Like they're they're gonna nail you unless you change your life. And that was part of that I'm reading from his memoir. This is from his memoir, which is really I recommend it to anyone to read Keith Keith Richards' memoir. Uh, that plus he had this revelatory experience, you know, in some back alley somewhere, you know, stewing in his own feces, uh, and thinking to himself, I'm having conversations with idiots here in this, in this back alley. Uh, this is not who I am. Like, I, I, Keith Richards. And better than this and it was the combination of the two things that turned to his mind in a supreme effort to detach from heroin and and uh and strike free of it uh now he's the exception rather than the rule though right? right so there's a lot of cases of destroyed lives because of of that nasty horrible drug so i guess the weird thing
0: about heroin though is i mean it's in a class of opiates and there are so, are opioids. I never know the difference. I don't. I don't speak enough science speak. But the, the it's part of a whole class that is used legally, and in fact is used oftentimes. People get addicted to opioids because a doctor prescribed it to them.
1: Well, that's I not mean, good. that's not good this- either.
0: <laughs> well, no, exactly. But I'm just wondering. I mean, it. You know, it's not a situation necessarily where someone was out seeking a high. I mean, I had this situation with my my son. He's 19 months old now. When when he was born, he had surgery on a diaphragmatic hernia. They gave him fentanyl. That, that's that fentanyl is a child's anesthetic treatment. That is where it came from. And then somewhere along the line, you know, I only know about it because I heard about it on W5. I heard about these people, you know, on the streets of Vancouver overdosing from from fentanyl. But it, you know, it has a legitimate these opioids have a legitimate use apparently in a hospital setting. And I don't know, you know, when people get into those situations, we're, we're in a weird sort of scenario where it starts legally. Presumably they get hooked on it while it's legal while they're getting it from a doctor, from, yeah, uh, from a pharmacy, wherever. And then they're kind of, they're getting, being pushed into this, into this black market. And I've heard people, you know, Johan Harry is really the, 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 leading voice on this that you know if you if you give these people an environment kind of like what they're doing in Portugal where like you know let them let them do what they they need to if they need to get their fix go and do it in a clinic go do it somewhere where where they're being monitored they're going to naturally want to get off of it as soon as they've got the rest of their their house in order once they've got their lives back on track and I don't know I don't know if that's uh you know i mean every time every time somebody brings up a case example from europe i say you know it's sort of uh, apples and oranges trying to compare it to to what we have here in canada but i wonder i wonder about that whether or not we need to look at how we're using it legally and maybe that's fueling this this criminal
1: market well i don't think the old approaches still work i i, I grant you that and my uh, my view on this is now powered by faith and uh my my savior Taught all of us, including myself, to lead with compassion uh, for yep. uh, people in these situations and to help them help themselves. So um, I, I don't judge anymore. I don't uh, condemn anymore. I don't uh, try to uh, use uh, the 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 elbow of the state. Uh, I think we've got to come up with all I want. Uh, I, I you know harm reduction. I get that. Uh, all I want is if you're going to do harm reduction, that's fine. <coughs> Pardon me, but what's the plan for these people? I don't want to yep, be yep. warehousing these people and forgetting about them, out of sight, out of mind. Oh, we've done yep, harm yep. reduction. They're, they're, you know, that's all. Like, you know, the 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 middle class wipes their their hands of it. Uh, I, I felt when I was dealing with Insight in in, in Vancouver that uh, it was a form of whitewashing by the middle class of Vancouver who didn't want to be stepping over their these these bodies on their on their walk to work in the morning uh, and uh, and so oh yeah yeah let, let's have them at insight so I don't have to worry about seeing them they'll be in East Grenville uh, you know uh, they'll be on H- Hastings Street and I don't have to worry about it anymore uh, you know, that to me is an abdication of moral responsibility. And I'm not speaking as a politician now. Uh, I, I, all I'm saying is, look, harm reduction, that's fine. But what's your plan to help these people? If you don't have a plan to help these people uh, get their lives back together, you are abdicating your moral responsibility. And, and I feel that as a person of faith. So that yep. that's where the conversation should start and i, I think we
0: veered a little bit further into politics than i i said i would or that i anticipated that i would but i
1: mean i, I shame on I you would, how, how dare you as Greta <laughs> i said.
0: i i i've seldom put associated you in the same sentence as Greta Thunberg. but there we go um i guess sort of the last sort of I hear your email box pinging off there. So I'm sure I got to let you go soon. I'm sure I got to let you go soon. That's all right. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that we got to do this. But, you know, there's something that you said there about rather than using the elbow of the state, we need to work in compassion. And oftentimes I see the political arena as being a place that is um, sorely lacking in compassion. Did you find it hard to to. Bring a compassionate mind to the work that you did in government at various levels.
1: I tried. I think I, I'd be better at it now because uh, 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 my faith has grown. Uh, but uh, but my, my understanding of my faith, I should say, my understanding of my yeah. faith has, has taken me on this road of compassion. Um, but, it, you know, it, Ottawa, official Ottawa, not you, Ottawa, it, it's a sure. tough place sometimes because you get wrapped up in it. And uh, you lose context and you lose perspective so quickly because you're in the day to day struggle. Oh, Motion X 14 is happening in the House of Commons Day. That is what I have to focus on. And, and I have to be against the government on this or for the government on that because Motion X 14 is the end of the world as we know it one way or the other. right? And so you get into that world, and it's it's almost like it's constructed that way because you have caucus meetings, and you have cabinet meetings, and you have committee meetings where everything is torqued up. And so the first thing you lose is perspective, which is one one of the reasons why I think it's really important to continue to have constituencies. We were talking about you were talking about uh, proportional representation. Um, yeah, yeah, You know, one of the things about consti- having to be responsible to a constituency is it forces the politician to go home if he's a, if he or she's a good politician to go home to their constituency, and to hear from regular people. Because otherwise, you're just wrapped up in official Ottawa, and oh my gosh, you will be sawed to touch before you, you know before the clock strikes twelve. So um, I, I I think there's really an important uh, necessity of uh, tethering politicians to normal people and having normal conversations and being concerned about normal things that people are going through uh, which i think i was very good at by the way Uh, and um, uh, that's just makes for better politics because if if all all politicians care about is what's happening on the house of commons order paper uh, oh my gosh uh, that will not be good for good decision making or having compassionate politicians what I hear you saying is that
0: the machinations of government are sort of uh, uh, fueling that 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 lack of perspective that once you're being pushed into these caucus meetings once you're into this party system you know it it it, it requires the individual politicians writ large to really Focus themselves to remind themselves about their constituencies, about the human element behind these pieces of legislation. Is there something that government writ large could do to foster more more compassion, to have more of a connection with the day to day lives of, of the citizenry?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it comes up to each individual. Polit- I, I don't see it as government's responsibility per se, but I think I think it uh, comes out of who you are as a politician. And you know, there's there's some good news. I think, I think the House of Commons is a lot more diverse than it used to be. And there's fewer lawyers. I'm a lawyer. I can say this. Uh, you're a lawyer. Uh, yeah, we yeah. had this conversation. Uh, but uh, you know, there's fewer lawyers. There's more diversity in experiences out there. You know, in, in the House of Commons. I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, and um, but it just gets chewed up like. Uh, you know, when I saw in 2015 when I saw the Trudeau government it, it, just starting out, I mean, it was a it was a Camelot time in Ottawa. I remember, you know, a new hope, young leader, dashing. Uh, he's going to respect the public service. He's going to because it's tw- because it's 2015. You know, half the cabinet is female. Uh, you know, a gender-based lens here and diversity there. Uh, and everybody got caught up into it. And then, as governments and politicians do, they tend to swallow themselves whole. And all of a sudden, and I'm, I'm not trying to be partisan, I'm just, I'm ob- this is my observation. Uh, you know, the Trudeau government became less open and less transparent. And uh, when, a, when a liberal backbencher veered off the established path, he or she got punished all of a sudden. You know, less less uh, uh, committee posts or whatever. That's the same old politics, right? That's the same old politics. It's sort of an and so you're saying it's sort of an inevitability
0: that regardless what your political stripes are, as long as you're holding the mantle of power, you still have
1: to kind of you know coach the wagon train. You know, Jerry Butts became the enforcer, and you know you didn't want to be on the wrong side of Jerry Butts and the PMO. And people started to resent the PMO. Oh, that's new! Never seen that in Ottawa before. Resenting the PMO, uh, you know. So it became sort of traditional, transactional politics again. So uh, this is why populism uh, is a such a force. Uh, and don't and bo- on both sides of the border and in Europe, uh, it is a force. And by the way, uh, if people think that the end of Trump is the end of conservative populism, you don't understand conservative populism. And the next. Be careful what you wish for in the United States, because the next conservative populist will be smarter, will be a better communicator, will uh, be uh, better funded. uh, And, uh, you know, he'll he'll still have a or she'll have a populist message. So um, this force ain't going away. And the reason it's not going away is because there are people left out of decision making that affects their lives in both Washington and Ottawa. One,
0: one interesting one, one interesting thing about that that I found, especially in this cycle, and maybe it's just sort of where I am in my life and my age, I've, I've sort of seen this incline where, you know, rhetorically, we always have the worst liberal president, the worst conservative president that we've ever had, this idea that we're going to these extremes. And, and you know, I remember when George W. Bush was president, I was just starting undergrad. He was going for re-election against Kerry and saying, well, you know, he's no liberals conceded that he's no Ronald Reagan. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan, at least he did this, this and this, this. And then I sort of saw that full circle where, you know, Ellen DeGeneres is apparently friends with George W. Bush now. And it's like, well, Trump, he he's no George W. Bush. I mean, he was a real statesman and this and that and the other. And it's and I'm just I'm imagining like eight years from now where it's like, you know, that President Kushner, he's he's no Donald Trump. I mean, you know, he carried himself a sort of rarefied yeah, yeah, dignity over in there.
1: Canada. Well, he's no Stephen Harper. That's already happening. So uh, it didn't didn't take too long. So, yeah, I mean, that's uh, what's the definition of a statesman, a dead politician. But uh, uh, there is, uh, (laughs) you know, it does get burnished over time. But um, hey, listen, we're in we're in it is it is it look, the times are stressful for people. And uh, I think Biden, by the way, is very uh, he's he's doing very well in this interregnum period saying, you know, everybody just keep calm. It's all gonna. It's all gonna be okay. Don't you know? I think those are the right words, and obviously in comparison to the present incumbent. Uh, so, uh, is it bad for the country if he goes
0: down swinging? Like if Trump loses this, but does it through a flurry of lawsuits? No,
1: it's not bad for the country because uh, the country has already moved on. Uh, he, he may be the last person raging at the clouds, but uh, uh, no, I, I, I honestly don't think it matters. People. Have already turned the page, uh, assuming that Biden wins, yeah. Uh, yeah. and uh, the Republican Party uh, will want to turn the page too. And yeah. uh, right. you know, assuming they, they retain control of the Senate, which now is a big if uh, because of Georgia, um, but uh, assuming they retain <laughs> control of the Senate, uh, they'll they'll have to rebuild from there. So yeah. uh, it's yeah. it's going to be. And uh, the interesting thing is, you not only are going to have that debate in the Republican Party but uh, you're having this debate in the Democratic Party already because they did poorly in the House of Representatives, they lost seats that they thought they were, they thought they were going to gain, net gain, and they've had a net loss, and they yeah. thought that they would, you know, sweep the Senate and they haven't. So they're going to have that debate over do they go the AOC route or do they go the, uh, the more centrist route? They're going to have that debate too. So American politics it's just like a cornucopia. You just It's good theater. It's good theater. It's I, young I and wrestle some steroids. The, uh, I mean, the end yeah. days of the Roman Republic, very interesting. uh, uh you know, Scipio and uh all the the characters uh and uh, it was it, it was kind of it was a little bit more ruthless like there is was like they, they'd send in the army to the, uh, the to the forum and uh, sort of browbeat and bully uh to to get the rostrum and 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 to maintain the debate of the citizens of rome uh but it, it, a lot of similarities man uh like you know people coming in and going out and alliances changing and people double, double crossing and uh uh it, it was uh, very interesting to see the, the last, say, 150 years of the Roman Republic and look at the American Republic and see the, the, uh, the similarities.
0: I mean, it's, as long as we're living during sort of, I don't know who the Caesar Augustus is going to be of, uh, of the United States. I mean, as long as we're living in the ascendancy of the empire, what I worry about is living in Canada, if this is like 355 A.D., and you know the huns are descending upon the the northern border or something like that so you know it's interesting as a as a sort of passerby of history but i take i mean we, we we're forced to rely on historical documents but i wonder you know given what you said about andrew johnson about george washington about about canadian politics about american politics that you know as ordinary people perhaps we we to a certain extent can really sort of sit on the sidelines and uh, and and observe this without getting caught up in it or at least not getting caught up into it more than than is necessary to to achieve some sort of goal
1: well some people have have written about this that You know and I've noticed this in the five years since Trump came on the scene when he was running for the Republican nomination so that's five years ago now Uh, you know Canadians are so wrapped up in US politics like as a Canadian politician when I was one it was frustrating because you wanted to talk people about Canadian politics and they say, yeah, but what about what Trump said yesterday? And, you know, he's like, ah, I don't want to talk about what Trump said yesterday. I want to talk about what Trudeau said yesterday, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, exactly. So uh, we're just so wrapped up into it now. I've never seen anything like it, even more so than the Bush years or, or whatever. Um, but again, that might be amplification by social media, but even having regular conversations with people, you know, you, you probably see this Antonio. you know, they, they're as, well informed about trump uh as any american is or more so yeah i mean it's it's you know it comes back to the
0: idea people are really well
1: informed about
0: sports and people are really well informed about the oscars and american politics is good tv they they know how to put on an entertaining show and for all the uh the qualms about the the electoral college i mean it's this is this is boom time for cnn right man john king is now in every household yeah exactly Absolutely. Well listen, I am I'm mindful of the time. I I could probably talk to you for two, three hours, but I don't I'm sure you're on to bigger and brighter things for, for the rest of your day. But thank you so much for doing this, Tony. I really appreciate it. Um I'm hopeful that we are gonna be post COVID sooner rather than later. And then hopefully we can get together in person and resume our squash rivalry.
1: Oh, I like that very much and keep uh, podcasting. It's great that you're doing it. And uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And we're getting
0: in on that chess game. I know we've had some some technological yeah.
1: hiccups, but we're making that happen. Okay,
0: good. I, have you started watching The Queen's Gambit yet? I've, I'm three episodes in. I mean, as you know, I was big into chess before that, but now I'm happy to see people that are like, getting a newfound excitement about it. I mean, all this time I thought I was supposed to study end games and, you know, work with my, my, my chess teacher, Zach Dukic, but apparently I should just be popping tranquilizers and getting hammered. And then that'll make me a chess grandmaster.
1: I know seeing the movement on the ceiling. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much for this, Tony. It's been a blast. Take care. Take care. Bye. And just like that, we have another episode of Who Cares If You Listen in the can. Thank you so much to Tony Clement, and thank you so much to Audacity, uh, my editing software, for letting me pick apart all the pieces of this sausage so that there was a little bit more pork and a little less squirrel. Uh, You know, I might have left a few shoelaces in there, but at the end of the day, there was really only so much I was going to do. I don't want this perfectionism to really envelop me, but I did not think I was going to get some sagely words from Ernie Eves. I only remember him from when we had that big blackout back when I was in, I want to say that was still high school, but I don't know if it was high school or undergrad, you know, Ernie Eves saying in the middle of some omnibus bill that, hey, relax kid, it's just politics. You know, oftentimes politics does seem larger than life and sometimes the stakes are larger than life, but you can take a step back from these things that seem absolutely enormous in the moment and really take inventory of what's going around you. Now, maybe that's a a muddled metaphor for some, but at least for me, I got some meaning out of that. As I'm sitting here venting and yelling because of some crossover in between the tracks, some audio fidelity issues that I'm not completely pleased with, um, it's important to take a step back and realize that in the grand scheme of my life, perhaps these are not the most important issues. These will pass. There will be other episodes. There will be improvements to audio quality. Somebody might not even listen or notice or care besides me. Um, but if there's going to be a takeaway for the people listening, maybe there are things like that in your life where you have fixated and magnified and, uh, turned up the volume on things that you don't necessarily want to listen to with that great attention. And if those things are present in your life, take inventory of them, look at them, observe them and see if they are taking their rightful place and if they're not serving you and if things are over amplified try to let them go sometimes easier said than done usually easier said than done but this is my uh faux wise man routine which is really just a way for me to fill up some space before i roll the end credits who Cares If You Listen is a podcast produced by me, Antonio Jamberdino. The opening credits are performed by me and written by me. The closing credits are based on a minuet by Ottorino Respighi and also played by me badly on my Techniques KN1400. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this podcast, that's nice.